Well, I'm committing a cardinal sin of, of pastors this morning uh, in that I am not, and intentionally not, uh, preaching a Christmas-specific message this morning. We're continuing our series on 1 Samuel, um, although I think every message in the Old Testament connects to the coming of our Lord Jesus. So we are in chapter 5. If you want to turn there, if you have one of our um, Gateway Bibles, it's on page 147. Uh, if you need a Bible, just throw your hand there. Someone will bring one to you. Otherwise, turn, click, swipe, tap to 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we'll be reading through chapter 5 and into chapter 6, verse 12. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought down to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel... Do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts 
as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in Put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this. It is he who has done us great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so, took two milk cows, and yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, and the box with the golden mice, and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Children love to help. I have four boys, as most of you know. Each has gone through phases in which little brings them more satisfaction than the sense that they are useful or capable. Oh, sure, sometimes, especially when they're two or three, uh, it's more of capability than actual usefulness. They want to prove that they can do stuff for themselves. And if you accidentally try to be nice and you try to help them by pouring the milk for them or opening the yogurt for them or cutting their food, when they have decided that it was their job and they were going to tackle it themselves, you better be prepared for screams and terror. But other times they legitimately want to help. And that, of course, can lead to waterworks also. You have to be very careful with little kids. So Thursday night, I was at Aldi with Silas, and, and he wanted to push the cart. And that, that poses problems because he can't see over the cart. And he has very little conditioning or general body control, but he's helping. And what it really means is that while he is pushing the cart from behind, I must somehow awkwardly continue to guide the cart from the side and pull it along to ensure that no displays are knocked over or customers' ankles are run over. Shopping with a little helper can also mean allowing him to take things out of the cart to put it on the checkout belt. Even though his arms are a little short for the task and he's really slow and there's other customers waiting in line, the reality is that little children aren't very helpful on the whole. Eventually they become helpful, but this toddler preschool help that they try to do is anything but helpful. It's slow, it's awkward, and it's sometimes painful. But as far as they're concerned, in their little infant brains, they're the world's biggest helpers. They're big. They're useful. And it's great for them to get that that self-esteem and learn what it means to help, but they aren't really helping in that moment. Their narrow perspective on the world doesn't allow them to see that their dad can do the job faster and more consistently. In short, you don't need them. They need you. And they have no idea. 
In this morning's passage, we have one of my favorite episodes for the Old Testament. We've, we've been in a series on the early life and career of the prophet Samuel. And last week, we learned that the Israelites had become so influenced by their culture that they looked more like Canaanites, the wicked people of ancient Palestine that they were supposed to conquer. They looked more like them than the people of God. Because they had departed from the glory of Yahweh, the glory of Yahweh departed from them. The Ark of the Covenant was stolen in battle by the dreaded Philistines. The central object of their religious life was gone. But this was just a symptom of the deeper problem that they had failed to worship and live rightly. They were worshiping false gods and practicing surely all sorts of wickedness that would have gone along with it. And that was a dreary story. And it left us with the ark missing in the hands of pagans and the Israelites bereft of the system of sacrifices that Yahweh had prescribed for them. So what would become of it? What would become of Israel? And those questions begin to get answered in, in 1 Samuel 5, 1 through six twelve. Previously, we left off with a battle between the Israelites and the Philistines at Ebenezer in which Israel sustained major casualties, 14,000 or so soldiers. From there, as we move into this passage, we're told in chapter 5 that the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant to Ashdod. The ancient city of Ashdod was located just a few miles south of the modern one, uh, just off the Mediterranean coast, just inland a, a little bit. Ashdod was about 40 miles south of where the battle took place. It was in an important city. The Philistines basically controlled their territory through five city-states, of which Ashdod was one. Much of what we know about the Philistines is from the Bible, the archaeological record. They, they existed, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot more than what the Bible tells us. We know that at times they were sizable, at times they were influential, and they worshipped typical Canaanite deities. So the ark is in the hands of pagans. And they take it into Dagon's temple. And that's what's meant by the house of Dagon. They set it there next to Dagon. And, and the word Dagon means grain. So Dagon was likely a fertility god and seems to have been the chief god of the Philistines, at least in the period that the Israelites dealt with them extensively. And I think this is interesting when, when I read this because I would have guessed they would have placed the ark before Dagon, sort of as an offering to the god. And, and when I realized that that's not actually what they did, it, it specifically says they put it beside him. So I, I dug in a little bit why they would do that, what was going on. And, and scholars seem to be in agreement that placing the ark beside Dagon was suggesting that Yahweh was now Dagon's attendant. And what that means in a polytheistic world is that the Philistines pictured that Yahweh was now the servant of Dagon. Yahweh did Dagon's bidding. What is more, it seems that the Philistines are looking at the ark as sort of an idol. Remember, the Israelites were forbidden from making images to represent Yahweh, or images of anything uh, in heaven and on earth that they would bow down to, for that matter. Yahweh has no inherent natural form, and to give him one is to dishonor him. 
He is above and beyond any physical representation that we might craft with our hands. The ark was not a Yahweh idol. It was a place of remembrance. It contained sacred items from their time in the wilderness. And it was a place of meeting where the high priest and by extension Israel would make atonement for sins. But it wasn't God himself. God didn't inhabit it. God didn't endow it with a portion of his spirit. It was not in any way an idol. But yet as the Israelites thought they could take it into battle with them and it would be in some sense Yahweh going into battle for them, the Philistines apparently thought they had captured an idol. And in some sense, they had captured Yahweh, the God of the ark. But something happens, right? When, when the Philistines come in the next morning, Dagon was no longer with Yahweh at his side. But instead, he, Dagon, is lying prostrate, be a prostrate statue, before the ark. Well, then, maybe uh, something disturbed their setup. They, they were moving things around the temple. Maybe they left something a little bit unsettled in the middle of the night. Something went wrong. You know, so they, they put everything back in its place. They close up shop for the evening. And when they return the next day, there is Dagon once again, genuflecting before the ark. But this time, it seems that in bending down, his head and his arms broke against the ground. This apparently begins a calamitous time for the Philistines where the area around Ashdod struck, is struck by what are called tumors. It's some sort of raised lump is, is what it means. It's a raised area. Uh, one suggestion that a number of scholars have, especially uh, given the connection with mice or rats later on in the chapter, is that the lumps were, were buboes, the swollen lymph nodes of a person infected with a disease like the bubonic plague. And that makes, makes sense with the connection with the mice, but we, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that it was bad. It was really bad. And the text doesn't tell us how long this continued before someone made the connection between the events and decided that Yahweh was not happy with them and or Dagon. But that's exactly what they finally decide. And so they call together the Lord's. They're unspecified, we don't have their names, but they are probably the five rulers of the five city-states of the Philistines. And they decide on a plan to send the ark to Gath, one of the other five major cities. Why? We don't know. As best as I can figure, they're running a controlled experiment. Is Yahweh mad with all the Philistines? Or just the Ashdodite Philistines? Is he mad with Dagon? Is it all the Philistines and Dagon? The way you do that is you test one variable at a time, I guess. And so maybe they thought Dagon had led them to victory over Yahweh, so it can't be that bad. He's got to have some power Yahweh. Let's just test the theory of which city it is, and let's move it to Gath. Whatever the case, they send it there. The plague breaks out there and continue on their single variable experiment. They send it to a third of the five cities, Ekron. Ekron freaks out. They want no part in this experiment. They say, are you trying to kill us? And the plague breaks out there as well so badly that they get all the lords together and they decide the ark must go away. No more experiments. The whole mess had lasted about seven months. And so they get together some priests and diviners. And diviners would be individuals trained to use various rituals or supposed supernatural contact in order to discern the right path or the will of the gods. The Bible forbids this but does give credence to the idea that it sometimes works. 
And their counsel is to send it away with a guilt offering, an offering given by a person who knows he has done something wrong. And they suggest that five golden tumors and five golden mice, one for each of the major cities of the Philistines, be sent with it. Which, every time I read this, I have to wonder what a golden tumor is. Like the mice, that's, that's pretty cool, right? Um, that could take some intricate metal work. But a tumor, or maybe a boil, or a bubo, I mean, that's just like taking a dollop of molten gold and just letting it cool, right? And that's, that does not take any artistic skill. Or did they design them? And if they did design them, like, did they grab, like, a Philistine, and they looked at that guy's lump and said, let's model our gold tumor after that guy's lump? It's a, it's a weird thing. But I think maybe that's the point of the detail. It's silly, It's stupid. As if someone could make the effort, somebody would make the effort to make golden tumors and that some deity would somehow be placated by that. It's absurd. That was not the God of Israel. That was not the God the Israelites were called to worship. What kind of God could be so easily propitiated? Maybe Dagon, but not Yahweh. But this little detail about the offering is at least the first note we're given that the plague affected more than just Ashdod and Gath and Ekron, but it also impacted the regions of Gaza and Ashkelon and the entire territory of the Philistines. What's more, we see that the Philistines know a little bit about the history of Israel still. We saw that last week as well. They've heard the stories about how Yahweh delivered Israel out of Egypt. And so they say, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did he not send the people away and they departed? But interestingly, the priests and the diviners have an experiment in mind as well. Uh, They're not 100% convinced this is from Yahweh. So they're going to put the ark on a cart. They're going to attach some cows to the cart and let it go. In fact, they ratchet up the test. They want cows that have never been yoked. Animals that were not trained to pull a load at all. They wanted cows that had recently given birth. They had young that needed to be weaned. Animals that are feeding, if you've ever been around them, they tend to be very responsive to the hungry calls of their infants and not a lot else. In short, these beasts had every reason to not go anywhere useful. But they figured if the ark, despite all these conditions, heads back toward Beth Shemesh, it means that Yahweh did all of this. If it goes some other direction, well, then it's just all coincidence. We can stop being superstitious. Beth Shemesh was a border town, uh, maybe 15 miles northeast of Gath, uh, 30 miles west of what would become modern Jerusalem. 15 miles uh, straight line, it would take them a little further to go that distance by foot. Uh, The significance of this is, though, the Israelites could easily retrieve the ark from this site. It was getting back to Israelite territory. If the ark went toward this city, it was an indication that the God of the ark was going home. So they take the golden mice, they take the golden tumors, they place them in a box, they place the box beside the ark, And all that's on a cart. 
The carts attached to the cows, and they let it go. The cows follow the road all the way to Beth Shemesh without deviating from the path at all. So deeply invested in the outcome were the Philistine lords that they themselves, the text says, followed the ark to the border to see what happened. So the seven-month episode comes at the heels of a series of skirmishes in which the Israelites lost 14,000 men in combat. We saw last week that it was a battle the Israelites should have won. They had a divine imperative to conquer the Canaanites and drive them out of the land. They had a divine promise of success if they were faithful, and they had the high ground. They were encamped on the hillside, and the Philistines were down in the valley. And they even, stupidly, we learned, but they even brought the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy object of all Israel, into their camp. And instead, they were routed. Yahweh, we saw, was not a talisman, not a fetish. He would not be used as a good luck charm by people who were serving other gods and were not serving him in righteousness. The people abandoned Yahweh, and so Yahweh abandoned them. When we consider this episode... As a whole, there are two lines in particular that stand out to me. Two lines which I think encapsulate the thrust of this passage. First, there's the words of the Ekronites in verse 11 of chapter 6. They say, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. But those words stand in relief against the words of chapter 5, verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Did you hear it? Did you catch it the first time through? Have you, did you catch it when you were reading it this week? These Philistines who were so worried at the end, about not being hard-hearted like the Egyptians, but how hard-hearted were they already? They worshipped a fertility deity that they had to help back off the ground and put him back in his own place. All the while they were in the presence of an invisible God who is everywhere, who sees all things. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. And he can see himself back to his place. He can command from heaven that lactating cows with the voice of their hungry calves in his ears, in their ears, can follow a path under a heavy burden for 20 miles of hilly terrain despite having never been trained to do anything like that under the best of conditions. The Lord would see himself back to his own place and Dagon had to be picked up off the floor and put in his place. Because this is the, the Philistines' perspective. The more accurate perspective is not that God needed to get to his place. He doesn't have a place. As Paul taught the philosophers at the Areopagus in Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
In short, what Yahweh was teaching the Israelites and what he has for us this morning is simply this. God will take care of God. God will take care of God. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need the Israelites. The Israelites mustered their forces at the battle lines with every conceivable advantage and they were massacred. Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, brought Dagon and the Philistines to their knees on his own without them. It's an idea the theologians call God's aseity. The idea that he is complete in himself without need from us, without cause to call on us for his own satisfaction. He does not need to be picked up off the floor. God can take care of God. Thank you. This shouldn't have been new to the Israelites when they were commanded to take the land from the Canaanites They were to merely be God's instruments. Their success and victory was dependent not on their greatness, but on the greatness of Yahweh fighting for them. So Moses said near the end of his life, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. In fact, God instructs the Israelites to leave all sorts of people behind. Newlyweds and those with newly planted vineyards. Stay at home. Don't fight. He intentionally limits their fighting numbers so that they must rely on his strength and not their own. Joshua, Moses' successor, also at the end of his life, both encouraged and warned Israel with these words. Therefore, be strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right nor to the left that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts flight A thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap. For you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off the good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And this is very nearly what happened to Israel, isn't it? They clung to the remnant of the Canaanites, associated with them, became like them, and the Lord didn't drive them out at Ebenezer. 
Like toddlers at the supermarket, we sometimes get the idea in our heads that God needs us. That God's cause rises or falls with our great efforts and battles. Two Sundays ago, Wang Yi, pastor of the Early Rain Covenant Church in Zhengdu, China, along with about 100 other church members were arrested by the Chinese government. Zhengdu is the capital of the Sichuan province in central China. You might not be familiar with it because it's a small city, only around 14 and a half million people. Wang expected to be arrested eventually. It's very difficult to be an evangelical Christian publicly in China because the government demands certain things that it's very difficult for a Christian to give. The government doesn't take kindly to spreading the gospel with the hope of conversion. The government demands loyalty through membership in the Communist Party. The government does allow certain kinds of churches, state-sponsored, three-self-patriotic movement churches, but the Christian message does not exist to promote any state. Not the Chinese state, not Rome, not England, not even the United States. Knowing he would be arrested, eventually, Wong penned a letter to be released 48 hours after such an event happened. The letter has been translated. It was made widely available last week. It's, it's a must-read. If you have not read it, it is a must-read. I preached a series on politics and our relationship to the state a couple summers ago, and, and Wong says more in four pages and better in four pages than I did in six or seven sermons. Sometimes we Christians think that it is our fundamental duty to defend God against the forces of evil in America. And I I see that from Christians on the left and on the right. But in dealing with a, a far greater threat to the historic Christian faith, Wong had a different response. And, and I, I, the letter's long, and I'm going to read a part of it at length because it's so good. And he wrote, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant John Calvin said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people. The goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. My personal disobedience and the disobedience of the church is not in any sense fighting for rights or political activism in the form of civil disobedience because I do not have the intention of changing any institutions or laws of China. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by this faithful disobedience and the testimony it bears for the cross of Christ. I am not interested in changing any political or legal institution in China. I'm not even interested in the question of when the communist regime's policies persecuting the church will change. 
regardless of which regime I live under now or in the future, as long as the secular government continues to persecute the church, violating human consciousness, consciences that belong to God alone, I will continue my faithful disobedience. For the entire commission God has given to me is to let more Chinese people know through my actions that the hope of humanity and society is only in the redemption of Christ, in the supernatural, gracious sovereignty of God. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who were attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children. Ruin my reputation. Destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith no one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. Those are the words of a man who is content in his circumstances because he understands that the battle is the Lord's and not his. You'll note that he doesn't call his stance civil disobedience. In fact, he repudiates that term. Civil disobedience seeks to change the civil order. He calls his stance faithful disobedience. His goal is not to change the civil order. His goal is to see the Lord change hearts. Brothers and sisters, the battle is the Lord's. And God's got this. God can take care of of God. Sometimes we're actually worse though, aren't we? I wish our, our motives were so pure that we thought we were crusaders for truth with a capital T against a wicked pagan world. But the reality is, is not that we see ourselves as God's necessary helpers. That would be incorrect enough. Instead, we're like the Israelites carrying the ark into battle, thinking that we can harness God for our own narrow, myopic ends. We think that we, we can take God and, and, and make him our, our socio-political fetish. And we think that we can pray him onto our side. And we can appease him, and he'll take note of our favored cause. And that he'll lead our team or our political party to victory. Let me suggest that this goes beyond politics and culture, though it certainly has much to say in that area. Because even as the Israelites couldn't fight off the Philistines without God, because it was only God who would grant the victory, so we are helplessly lost in our sins apart from God. And that, and that means two things, depending on where you stand with regard to Jesus Christ. If you are outside of Christianity, if you are a non-believer, if you are a person perhaps who incorrectly thinks of themselves as a believer but really is not, 
you're not really a follower of Jesus Christ, then the Bible has a dark picture. You're dead in your sins. There's an analogy that Christians often use when they're telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, they, They ask you to picture that there's something like a great gulf or a chasm between man and God. And that gulf exists because of our evil, our sin. And even if we'd committed one evil, one sin, because that offense is it's not against a, an animal, it's not against a, 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 poor, a person, even a very important person, it's a sin ultimately against a holy and infinite and perfect God, and so that chasm is, is infinitely wide, and we could never hope to cross it. And, and that's all true. And, and the, way, the way this is explained is that Jesus, in his sacrifice on the cross, bridges the gap between us and God so that access to God can be restored. But this is where I would argue that the analogy breaks down. It's, it's, It's close enough that it's a good beginner theology. But see, if if Jesus had made a bridge and we had to cross it, maybe we could understand the Israelites taking God into battle, taking the ark into battle. Maybe we could understand being God's culture warriors to bring about righteousness. But here's the problem. Dead men don't walk across bridges. The good news is so much better than that. The good news is that Jesus, yes, he made a bridge between us and God, and then he walked over to the land of the dead, threw my dead body on his shoulder, and took me back to the giver of life and made me alive by his spirit. That's the good news. Not that I brought anything to the table. I don't fight the battle against my death. I don't help God fight the battle against my death. God fought the battle against my death and God won. That's the good news. And so if you're still living like there is something you ought to do to make yourself right with God, then you don't know the true God. He is not interested in your help or your self-righteous efforts. He wants you but he doesn't need you. And that's a big difference. He'll make you alive. That's good news. Because as Wong said, the Communist Party, the Chinese government, your favorite politician, your good works, your effort, none of them can raise the dead. But Jesus can Now, if you're a Christian, if I can rightly call you a brother or a sister, then let me ask you this. Why do you continue to fight your personal sins as if God hadn't already won the battle? Look, it's not as if there isn't work to be done. I don't want to carry this analogy too far. You're still a wretch like me. But once the decisive battle is won, you fight differently. 
No army lands the death blow against an enemy and then continues to fight the battle in the same patterns and with the same strategies as before. Things are different now. Once the the critical battle and the death blow has been landed, it becomes more of a mop-up effort. It becomes becomes more of a a search-and-destroy mission. You're you're looking for any last soldiers and, and, and battalions that are scattered out there, and you're hunting them down and taking them out one by one. It's a different thing. Jesus has already secured the victory. And so, for those of us who are Christians, there is still work to do. But we operate in a different way. We operate under the victory that Jesus has already won. Does that make sense? We don't try to fight the battle as if Jesus hasn't already secured the defeat of the enemy. We operate under the parameters of his overwhelming victory already. And we are engaged. We are not sitting on the sidelines, but we are engaged in a search and destroy mission to root out our continuing sinfulness, to to find the places that have not yet fully been surrendered to Jesus Christ and to put them to death where they stand that we might grow into the full stature of the maturity of Christ. And we fight that battle differently. We don't fight that battle by our own strength. We fight that battle in Jesus' strength. We fight that battle with the tools that he has given us. The means of grace that he has given us. We fight those tools. We fight with the tools of the word of God. The sword of the spirit. That, that which can penetrate even to the division between soul and spirit and, 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 and marrow and bone, the, the author of Hebrews says. In other words, it, it digs into our soul and slices us up. We fight by God's word. We fight by his people. He hasn't just made us alive. But he has made us alive and brought us into a new people, the church, a new family. And so we we look to each other. And we encourage one another. We we intentionally engage in relationship with one another. One-on-one, one-on-two, five-on-five, a hundred-on-a-hundred to help each other root out sin. And to dig into God's word together. To encourage one another. To exhort one another. To rebuke one another. To counsel one another. And we don't take great offense at it. If you're wondering which side of that fence you're on, I tell you what, here's a good litmus test. It's not a perfect litmus test because we're all sinners. But when you're rebuked, when your friend calls you out, when, you, when your friend sees that sin that's in your life and they, and they lovingly they tell you, man, I see this going on in your life, what's your response? Is your response to get really pissed or do you say faithful are the wounds of a friend they hurt 
they sting. But you're so glad that you're moving closer to holiness and righteousness. And you love that your brother or your sister loved you enough to bring it to your attention. Oh, sure, we'll, we'll, we fall short. I'm not saying that every time we get upset at somebody, that means we're not a Christian. But what is the, what is the pattern of our lives? Is the pattern of our lives one that we accept correction, that we accept rebuke, that we correct change, that we desire it, that we covet it, that we look for it, that we ask for it? So we fight the battle differently. We are not, we are not going to self-help gurus. We are not trying to become ascetics and deny ourselves of all the pleasures of the flesh to try to make ourselves holy. We don't lock ourselves into a cell or become monks or hermits in order to make ourselves a false sense of holiness, but no. We become more like Jesus who could walk even in the midst of an evil and perverted generation and yet was without sin because he didn't serve any master that lived in this world, but he served a master who was in heaven. And so we too, we fight by his victory. We fight by his word that he gives us. We fight by prayer which he gives us. He, he opens a door of access to God that non-Christians do not have. He gives us a family that non-Christians do not have to encourage us and to build us up. So we fight differently. We fight differently because God has already won. And he doesn't need us. He will make you holy on the last day when Christ himself raises the dead. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for... silly and selfish endeavors to make ourselves right before you, our egotistical notions that somehow you need us, our self-importance and our self-worth is sometimes so inflated. You are God. There is none like you. Who sees the end from the beginning. Who knows every decision of the lot that's cast into the lap. Who directs the steps of every man who directs his way. Forgive us for the ways that we have tried to manipulate you and domesticate you and make you our trinket, our good luck charm, our talisman. Forgive us for the times that we in our conceit have simply thought that we are your helpers. That without you we you would fail.
for we know you will not fail. Your plans never fail. Give us the peace that passes understanding to endure any trials and any difficulties that might come our way knowing that you are the Lord and the battle belongs to you. And may we be a people who fight sin, not by our own strength, but by the strength you provide in the victory that you have already won. Let us be relentless in rooting it out, hunting it down, killing it. And God, may those here who may have deluded themselves into thinking that they were among your people or maybe know for sure that they are not your people. May they surrender to the God who took on flesh and dwelt among us as we remember this Christmas season and won victory for us can cross the bridge and take their dead body home. Let them worship that God. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As you're able, uh, let's continue to worship God in song by standing and singing.